Hello, welcome to the podcast Psychiatry Talk. I'm Dr. Michael Blumenfield, the Sidney E. Frank Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at New York Medical College and currently in private practice in Woodland Hills, Los Angeles, California. This podcast will examine various topics in psychiatry and mental health. This will include new interviews with experts in various areas, as well as interviews I've recorded in the past. I will also personally discuss subjects that I've written about in my blog, psychiatrytalk.com, or on new topics. Your comments will always be welcome at mblumenfield at gmail.com. That's mblumenfield, B-L-U-M-E-N-F-I-E-L-D, at gmail.com. And now let's get going with today's podcast. Hello. As part of this podcast, I thought from time to time I would summarize some journal articles from professional journals. My summaries of selective articles, and these are my summaries and interpretation, and no medical decision should be made without reading the entire article and discussing the individual situation with your, your own physician. I'm looking now at the July 18th issue of the American Journal of Psychiatry, volume 175, number seven. Three articles uh, caught my attention. The first one is titled, Antidepressant Resistant Depression in patients with comorbid subclinical hypothyroidism or a high normal thyroid stimulating hormone level. So in other words, patients who have a depression that's not responding to antidepressants at the same time that they have a hypothyroid, low thyroid functioning or a high normal TSH level, which would mean low-functioning thyroid. The article is by Bruce Cohn, Barbara Soam, and Alexander Vokovic uh, from Harvard Medical School, McLean Hospital, and Stanford Medical School. So let's look at this article. It's well known that patients with low thyroid functioning can have depression, which will improve when a thyroid supplement hormone is given. Two case histories are presented in this article. One was a 35-year-old woman with a previous history of depression who did not respond to high doses of antidepressants. She was also being treated for uh, a thyroid condition with thyroid replacement hormone, and her thyroid tests were normal. Her endocrinologist found no signs of overt hypolothyroid functioning. However, the psychiatrist and the endocrinologist agreed to a trial of increasing her thyroid replacement medication. And when they did that, her depression significantly improved. Okay, next case. This is a 52-year-old woman with a history of depression who responded well to antidepressive medication. Earlier on, when she was 46, she developed a thyroid condition and was treated with thyroid replacement hormone. 
Her depression, however, did not respond to increasing her antidepressant. However, when her thyroid supplement was increased, her depression improved. The article went on to discuss the importance of considering the need for enhancing thyroid functioning by giving extra thyroid hormone when there is refractory depression. The next article is titled Efficacy and Safety of Intranasal Esketamine for the Rapid Reduction of Symptoms of Depression and Suicidality in Patients at Imminent Risk for Suicide, Results of a Double-Blind Randomized Placebo-Controlled Study. The authors, there are 11 authors, a senior author is Carla, the senior author is Carlo Canuso, and uh, the authors are from the Department of Psychiatry at Yale. There's also mention of support for the research by Janssen Pharmaceutical Company. Now we know that esketamine, also called ketamine, is used as a general anesthetic, and it's a rapid-acting one, and it's extremely effective but it can also be used illegally as a hallucinogenic drug, and it can be deadly uh, if used in the wrong dosage, and if not carefully monitored by uh, an anesthesiologist. So the purpose of this study was to determine by research whether using esketamine in an experimental nasal spray, that the drug might be effective for the rapid onset of depression and also for resistant depression and for patients with a severe suicidal ideation. The authors did a double-blind study using placebo for one group. They concluded that intranasally esketamine compared with placebo, given in addition to the usual standard care of treatment for depression, patients with severe depression and suicidal ideation, may result in a significant rapid improvement uh, of the depressive symptoms and including improvement of the suicidal ideation. Now these are uh, preliminary research and the authors say they have to be studied in, in more detail, but it raises some very interesting possibilities for this drug that if it's not in the right hands can be a deadly, deadly uh, drug especially those who are using it for illegal purposes to get high and um, sudden death does occur with the drug. But it also seems to have a potential value when used intranasally under uh, very clear guidelines and medical supervision. The next article is a collaborative study uh, by authors all over the world. The senior author is Felipe Schunk from LaSalle University in Brazil. 
The title of this article is Physical Activity and Incident Depression, a Meta-Analysis of, of Prospective Cohort Studies. The objective was to examine the prospective relationship between physical activity and incident depression and to explore the potential moderators. Now this was a very large study combining 49 different prospective studies which had a total of 266,939 subjects. The conclusion was that available evidence supports the notion that physical activity can confer protection against the emergence of depression regardless of age and geographical region. So that may not be a big surprise, but it's certainly interesting to get confirmation in this very broad uh, research study that combined many individual studies uh, over many years. The final study that I want to uh, the final article that I want to briefly describe is titled Prenatal Primary Prevention of Mental Illness by Micronutrient Supplements in Pregnancy. The authors are Robert Friedman, Sharon Hunter, and Camille Hoffman from the University of Colorado School of Medicine. In the article, they discuss the effects of folic acid, phosphatidylcholine, omega-3 fatty acid, these supplements along with vitamin A and vitamin D in pregnant women to possibly prevent mental illness in unborn children. So obviously a very worthy endeavor, although a very difficult one. The key findings basically show that higher serum levels of vitamin A and D appear to promote brain development and to decrease the risk for schizophrenia. But their potential toxicity limits the use to the current recommended amounts. Folic acid is also currently in prenatal vitamins, but at levels far below the amount that in the research has been shown to be effective for neural tube defects. Folic acid also has benefits for the developing fetal brain and subsequent child behavior and cognition, but it has not been shown to specifically prevent schizophrenia. Omega-3 fatty acids increase the risk for later schizophrenia, and modestly increase childhood ADHD, but they also substantially decrease the risk of both premature birth and childhood wheezing. Phosphatidylcholine supplements have been more recently studied prospectively and generally have been found to promote the development of the fetal brain and subsequent childhood behavior, but no retrospective or epidemiological studies have been performed. So, in conclusion, in the absence of definitive evidence, parents planning a pregnancy 
now have the difficult decisions about nutrient supplements. We know, or it's been shown, that the mother is unlikely to receive fully effective levels of the currently studied nutrients from diet alone. Also, it's been shown that the adverse effects of supplements are few at the dosage studied, but the authors feel it still would be premature to conclude that they're non-existent. Now, they, they also make the interesting conclusion that there's only one opportunity in each child's life for intervention to enhance fetal brain development and protect the child against developmental risk. And that obviously is in the, in the fetal uh, developmental period. So the problem of, of, of the exact dosage of, of these nutrients hasn't been established. And there's the, uh, while higher doses seem to be effective, there still seems to be a possibility or it hasn't been ruled out if the dosages are high, there may be some still def unknown, undefined risk to the newborn. So this is the state of the art and this article uh, sort of struggles with this issue. So that's basically uh, a little summary of a couple of articles in the July 2018 issue of the American Journal of Psychiatry. This concludes today's podcast. Your comments are always welcome at mblumenfield at gmail.com. That's M-B-L-U-M-E-N-F-I-E-L-D at gmail.com. This is Dr. Michael Blumenfield wishing you a pleasant day.